Welcome to this podcast of the Journal of Neuroophthalmology. I am Prem Subramanian, the online content editor of the journal, and I'm speaking today with three of the authors of one of the recent papers in the journal, which was entitled Finite Element Modeling of Optic Chiasmal Compression. The senior author was Christian Lewick, who is a neuroophthalmologist in Canberra. He's joined by two of his engineering colleagues, Xiao Fei Wang, who's a biomedical engineer, and Andrew Neely, an aerospace engineer with clearly an interest in medical things as well. So gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, and uh, thank you very much for joining us today. I'll begin uh, by addressing a question to all of you, but uh, Xiao Fei in particular to start, about uh, the paper and an assumption you made in your model where you assume that tumor compression occurs at the precise center of the chiasm. We know biologically this is not always the case, and how complex would it be to now introduce new variables like a pre- or post-fixed chiasm, asymmetric tumor growth, or even the rate of growth? Thank you, Prem. So, well, it's not the main aim of this paper to investigate the pre- or post-fixed chiasm but they are pretty easy to model. So we have performed some simulations for the pre- and post-fixed chasm, but found the strain distribution trend in the chasm are still the same as in the normal position of the chasm. So that is, the central part of the chasm experiences larger strain than the peripheral part of the chasm. So given that the pre- and post-fixed chasm only account for a very small portion of the population, the left or right offset of the pituitary tumor is more important compared with the pre- or post-fixed effect. That is because in reality the chasm may not be loaded centrally because of the variations of the tumor shape and the growing direction of the tumor. For these laterally asymmetric cases, we found that the peak strain locations in the chasm were correlated with the compression set of the chasm. In clinical cases, it is common that the chasm is not loaded centrally, which indicates that the strain distribution difference in the central and peripheral part of the chasm itself could not explain the vertical cutoff of the viral field defect in bitemple hemopia. So regarding to the loading rate, uh, yes, it is very important that the loading rate can influence the mechanical risk response of materials dramatically. And viscoelastic material models have usually been used for rate-dependent loading cases. However, for slow-loading cases, the time-dependent terms in the material model can be ignored, and it does not introduce an appreciable error in the solution. So in chasm compression caused by pituitary tumor, the chasm is compressed at an extreme low rate. Normally, the tumors take years to grow before it touches the optic chasm. So given the extremely slow rate in this case, viscous behaviors of the materials were not incorporated in this work. Thanks, Xiaofei. I think that what you've done with your further modeling is to show that wherever you put the tumor in the chiasm, you'll get a qualitatively different pattern. And as you say, the stress of the strain will be largest where the uh, tumor is. But the thing that that still doesn't do for us is explain why you get a cutoff uh, so that the crossing fibers are effective, whereas the uncrossing fibers are not. And we still need something 
to explain that difference. Andrew here. Um, and that difference is we have found the superposition of the presence of either crossing or uncrossing nerves on that stress or strain field. And so w without incorporating that uh, micro-scale effect of axonal crossing, we are not able to, to resolve a, a distinct uh, discontinuity in uh, damage to the, to the axons, which we believe might then be exhibited in something like bitemporal heminopia. Thank you. Uh, your explanation about the rate not really being relevant is interesting and clearly something beyond this paper uh, for something like pituitary apoplexy, for example, where there's a rapid change and that clearly has a much different prognosis for visual function and often an irreversible change. So uh, really brings to light some of the things that I think we don't think about very much. Now, Andrew, I'd like to address the next question to you, uh, and in particular, the issue of the difference in the clinical manifestations of visual field loss in two patients who maybe have the same radiographic appearance on M MRI, where a tumor is compressing the chiasm, and one patient has a clear bitemporal hemianopia, while another has virtually no visual dysfunction. Is there something with the modeling where we could investigate the differences between patients in situations like this? That, that's a good question. Um, one of the beauties of, of using a numerical technique like finite element modeling is it allows us to, to examine different scenarios, to, to vary parameters and see what effect they have on the resultant behavior. Now, as you say, clinically you might observe what appears to be similar uh, loading, similar tumor growth in relation to a, to a chiasm that results in quite different outcomes. Having said that, of course, and, and we have more recently, since the JNO paper, looked at taking MRI images uh, and building higher fidelity models of, of the chiasm. And one of the things that we have found from that is that current MRI that we have access to, given the small size of the chiasm, the spatial resolution is not great. So what might, on, a, on face value, appear to be very similar loading cases might have subtle but important differences in terms of the actual geometry of the chiasm, the actual geometry of the tumour, and even the, the relative position of loading. Additionally, finite element modelling is only as good as the, the boundary conditions and the, the inputs such as the um, material models that we put in, and there is still uh, a large degree of uncertainty about those material models. So variability within a person, variability with age, variability between individuals. And so you might get two individuals that have quite similar geometry of loading, but have different stiffness, perhaps, in their chiasm or in their tumour. And, and so what the FEM allows you to do is to, given some specified geometry, given some specified material models, get distributions of, of damage, of, of deformation of strain, of loading of stress. The other key thing here is you then have to combine that with some knowledge of nerve dysfunction at what, what threshold needs to be reached um, in those parameters or in fact other parameters, what actually causes the nerve dysfunction. 
And, and so in, in some of those cases, if you start to have variability between individuals, you may have surpassed the threshold of damage in one individual, but not in the other. And, and I think this point emphasizes the need, you know, we, we're really at the beginning of this in terms of the, the engineering modeling. What we're crying out for is a better understanding of the nerve dysfunction, of what is causing the nerve dysfunction. One or more um, contributors might, might exist. Stretching, um, ischemic causes, internal loads, but also we, we need to better understand the variability of, of the material models in the tumor and the, the, the chiasm itself in, in the axons. Thank you, Andrew. And I, I think building on what you said, as physicians and surgeons, we sometimes think looking at the MRI that we're just looking at space or fluid around the chiasm, and clearly that's not going to be the case. There are tissue septi and other sorts of things that are going to affect this, uh, the geometry, affect the reaction to strain and such, and we, I, I look forward to the further work that you're going to do to try to model those things. Could, perhaps I, I will just add there, Prem, that uh, that work's already underway. We, we've, we've already started a, a number of different campaigns to better understand the, the anatomy, uh, the histology of the chiasm, uh, through very, very high-resolution uh, microscopy, um, and, and also more recently with some other colleagues at uh, the Australian National University, we're, we're looking at um, a new technique called two-photon imaging to try and look at the, well, in, initially at the, the, the routing of, of the axons through the chiasm, but actually also the, the other anatomical constructs surrounding the, the axonal bundles. And we're hoping that this will allow us to build much more complex, geometrically complex, therefore higher fidelity models of what's actually going on and, and build some of this greater complexity into to the models to see what influence that has on the outcome. That's fantastic. Now, Christian, uh, how might we apply things like finite element modeling to other optic nerve compressive disorders, Andrew was just talking about a better understanding of the milieu in which the axons exist. Could we look at things like papilledema? Could it help us to understand the typical progression of vision loss in a disease like that where it follows a stereotypic pattern from infranasal step to generalized constriction to central loss, for example? Thank you. Again, a very good question. I think it would be fair to say that you can model anything you want to model. But whether or not the model actually represents what's going on in real life is the real question. And we've actually been fortunate in that looking at the optic chiasm is relatively straightforward, even though it's complex, because the number of tissues involved is relatively small. There are obviously the nerves which are running through, there are the uh, glial cells there, the fibrous coatings that there may be, blood vessels running through it, but that's about all. Whereas when you come to something like the uh, um, optic disc, um, it becomes much more complicated. And it, the editorial that went with our article by Crawford Downs has in it a picture of work that they're doing on the lamina cubrosa and just looking at the extraordinarily complicated anatomy of that area and the different mechanical properties that will be involved there. And then if you think about the 
different vascular architecture, the nerves that are running through, and once you start getting papilledema, the nerves are swelling, and they may have different mechanical properties to unswollen nerves. The whole thing becomes incredibly complicated. Now, we think this is wonderful, and a wonderful opportunity to explore and try to understand how the nervous system works. And starting with the chiasm as a simple structure seems a very good place to go, but we really don't have good information about what the mechanical properties of living tissue are. And it's, I don't need to tell anybody listening to this, it would be very difficult to get that information in practice. But what we really need to know is how living tissue behaves, not only at a macroscopic level, but at a microscopic level, under different conditions, such as deformation by tumour, and one day, with lots of different studies, the anatomical studies that Andrew was referring to, and hopefully other uh, biomechanical studies that we might get involved with, we hope to be much more confident that the model we've got is a real description of human tissue. And then we can predict and do all sorts of things. But at this point, there is, to be honest, a fair amount of conjecture. Well... Regardless of any conjecture that may be involved, I think this is a fascinating advancement of our understanding of at least some of what is happening when we have tumor compression of the optic structures. And I want to again thank all three of you for joining me today to elaborate on your article and to bring out some additional points for our listenership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.